Well, good morning, Liberty Christian Fellowship. Good morning. Thank you. I saw a lot of you last Sunday and some more of you on Wednesday night. So a special hello to those of you that I haven't been able to see yet or give a hug yet. We'd love to see you and get to talk to you as well. <clears throat> I also bring greetings from the team in Western Asia. We say merhaba to say hello there. So I bring a big hearty merhaba from the team that's in Western Asia. Some of us are here. Half of us are still over there. We're with you for a short time this summer, but we're looking forward to enjoying it together. If you're new the last few years or a visitor with us this morning, as Tim just explained, my name is Drew Matthews. I don't live here. I live in Western Asia and I'm part of the church planting team that's over there. I've been invited this morning to lead us through a discussion on the hair-raising topic of anger in the book of Proverbs and in the Bible. If you ask people who know me, some of you do know me, they would probably not describe me as an angry person. When I moved to Western Asia four years ago, however, some things changed. When I explain to somebody what it's like to live cross-culturally and tr try to immerse yourself in a new culture, I like to describe it with an analogy. It's like you're a, a piece of fruit that looks great, we'll say an orange, okay? You're this very nice-looking orange that looks really ripe on the outside, but when you move to that new culture, you're pressed and you're squeezed and you're stressed in ways that you've never experienced before, and when that happens, Everything that's on the inside gets squeezed out and the juices begin to show themselves. And often these juices are sour, showing that you're not quite as ripe as you thought you were. And so in my personal experience, one of the tart things that began to show up in me more often was anger. And I have these outbursts of anger, a lot of times directed at my family or people that I'm closest to, sometimes other people. I just noticed it welling up in myself more often than it ever had before. And the other men on my team started to notice the same thing, especially those of us who are fathers, started to notice that this became an issue more often than we had ever dealt with before. So we would talk about it. We would confess sin and, and pray for each other in this area a lot. So whether you're like more like pre-Western Asia me or post-Western Asia me, in either case, I want to invite you this morning to join us on this journey of what God's wisdom has to teach us about anger. And of course, we're not here to hear what I have to say about it today. One of the things I love about our church is we don't just support the random thoughts of whoever's on stage, but rather we submit to the timeless truth of God's word. So we're going to see what God's word has to teach us this morning. We're in the book of Proverbs, as we have been all summer, and when we read through Proverbs, we quickly notice the theme that it teaches us about anger. And for the sake of you having some skin in the game here this morning and staying awake, I'm going to ask you to pick up what this theme is. Notice what the pervasive theme is as we read through these Proverbs. We're going to root our learning today in four different Proverbs that teach about anger. You're going to see them up on your screen. Again, let's notice the theme together. Proverbs 14.29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. 15.18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. 16.32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, 
and it is his glory to overlook an offense. There is one theme weaving its way through all of these Proverbs. It comes in a three-word phrase. Say it with me. Slow to anger. Let's say it again. Slow to anger. This concept of slowness to anger is corroborated throughout the Bible, perhaps most clearly in James 1.19, which says, Dear brothers, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I was thinking about where we've been the last three weeks together as a church. Two weeks ago, we talked about listening. Last week, we talked about words and speaking, and today we're talking about anger. So this could kind of be called the James 1.19 breakout in the Proverbs series. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. This morning, I want to exposit this biblical concept, this biblical command, we could call it, to be slow to anger in three stages. Number one, we're going to talk about the character of God. Number two, the concept of honor. And number three, the communicability of the anger attribute. Now, don't get lost on that third one. We're going to learn it together. The character of God, the concept of honor, the communicability of anger. Before we go there, let's ask a question that we've been asking throughout this series, and that is this. What does the world's wisdom teach us about anger? What does the world tell us to do with our anger? It tells us a lot of things, but some things you read actually sound somewhat similar to the Bible and tell us to control our anger, be slow to anger. But here's the problem with the world's wisdom. It says you can control your anger. You can count to 10 before you get upset. You can think before you speak. It's all rooted in ourself and the power of our will, as if we can control everything. The Bible, God's wisdom, gives us another, much stronger, much more reliable root in our quest to be slow to anger, and that is the character of God himself. Lesson number one this morning, God is slow to anger. God is is slow to anger. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. Many of you will know this chapter. It's a popular one in the Bible, in the Old Testament. It's the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 34. In verse 5, the Lord descends in a cloud on Mount Sinai, and he's talking to Moses here. And in verse 6, he reveals himself, and he describes his character in this way. The Lord, the Lord... A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. One of God's staple characteristics is that he is slow to anger. What does this mean? What does it look like? Psalm 103 expounds it a little bit more. I'm reading from NIV starting in verse 7. You can just listen if you'd like. It talks about what is it? A God like who is slow to anger. What does that mean he does? How does he act? Psalm 103, verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Here's what he does. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, hallelujah, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Our God is loving. He is forgiving. He is slow 
to anger. We are God's children if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. So what does this mean for us? It means this. Our God is slow to anger, and so should his children be. God is slow to anger. His children should reflect this slowness to anger. In our efforts to walk in wisdom and be slow to anger, we need to root ourselves in God's character, not our own. Not the quick 10 steps we can find on the internet to be slow to anger, but let the character of God work through us. And here's the beautiful thing. This isn't just some thing out there that's hard to grasp. If we are in Christ Jesus, we have the very spirit of God. We have been endowed with God's very presence. We can actually live out his character. So the Holy Spirit can help us count to 10 before we get angry. God is daily transforming us more into his likeness. The Holy Spirit can direct us to truth to help get us out of the distortion that our mind is in. Slow to anger is actually attainable on a consistent basis in Christ. It's actually attainable. I love the way Colossians 3 exhorts us. Starting in verse 12, it says this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. The NIV says, clothe yourselves with compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. That's a great antidote to anger right there, forgiveness. Why can we forgive? Why can we forgive? The verse goes on. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. So we're rooted in the character of God and we're rooted in the gospel in our quest to be slow to anger. And we can clothe ourselves with God's very characteristics. When I was a child, I used to love to go into the closet, my dad's closet, and wear my dad's clothes. My dad was a state champion wrestler, Center High School, 1971. Anything sports-related, especially, I love to wear. Letter jackets, basketball shoes, that sort of thing. And this past week, my two sons went into my old bedroom at my parents' house and saw college basketball uniforms and high school football uniforms, and they were in another world. Here's a picture for you. They loved it. There's something about putting on dad's clothes and wanting to be like dad. And as God's children, what an honor it is to clothe ourselves with the very character of God. Yeah, it's bulky. It doesn't fit at first. We need to learn how to grow into God's character. But I can't think of any greater honor and joy in all the world than the joy of knowing Jesus and the honor of growing in his likeness and character. So, we, as believers in Christ, can go to the closet in the morning and we can actually clothe ourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility. And we can be slow to anger. This is not only possible, it is expected. Because what is inside of us has already been clothed with the likeness of God. So, when we're squeezed, when we're pressed, when we're stressed and we feel so outraged, like we have every right to be mad, this is my right to be angry right now, what can actually come out of us is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, peace, patience, self-control. As believers, we root ourselves in the character of God, and we are slow to anger. Many of you know my teammates, the Korshots. 
When I started pastoring at LCF in 2010, my wife Sarah and my newborn son Luke and I lived with Drew and Andrea while we were looking for a home of our own. And it was at this time that the Core Shots taught us how to play the Settlers of Catan. Any Catan fans out there? So we were the newbies and they were the teachers. And one of those first few games, Andrea kept wanting to trade for our sheep. She just wanted sheep from us. And I just, I like to figure things out. I couldn't figure out. Why does she just want our sheep? This is bothering me. And so it came to this very crucial point in the game, a tense moment. And I'm about to agree to a trade to give Andrea some sheep. And right when I'm about to hand over the cards, her husband, Drew, says, you know, she only wants your sheep because she wants to use her two-for-one port over there and trade it for whatever she wants. And I didn't understand that to this point in the game. Well, as soon as she said that, as soon as he said that, there was a bowl of snacks on the table. I think it was craisins and pretzels or something like that. As soon as Drew said that, Andrea took the entire bowl right in Drew's face, <laughs> emptied the bowl right in his face. And we're sitting there like, what just happened? She's uber competitive, for those of you that didn't know that. <laughs> That's not the example of being slow to anger. This is, uh, I'll never forget Drew's reaction. He looked at her, he looked at the ground, and he just started picking them back up and putting them in the bowl. And he put the bowl back on the table. Now, that is the profile of a Christ follower, one who is forgiving, one who is loving, and one who is slow to anger. And I want to be clear, because she might listen to this, especially Andrea is all of those things too. And she's been a wonderful example to me. For years of that, just don't play Catan with her. <laughs> God is slow to anger, and so should his children be. That's lesson number one. And before we move on to lesson number two, let's identify something else that the world tells us about anger. One other thing the world tells us is this. In situations when our honor is challenged, when we're insulted, when an offense is committed against us, the world tells us that if we don't fight back, if we don't get back at that person, we're weak. We're not manly enough. What does God's wisdom say? The third, the third proverb that we read from Proverbs 16 says this. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. God's wisdom tells us that in God's eyes, one who is slow to anger is stronger than the strong. One who conquers his temper is more accomplished than one who conquers a city. That's what God's wisdom says. Lesson number two this morning is this. It's on the concept of honor. And it is that in Christ, believers have enough honor and don't need to fight for more. Believers already have more than enough honor and don't need to fight for more. What's the world's wisdom rooted in? The world's wisdom is rooted in this system that says we have honor and we have shame that we can win from society, from the community. And that's what life is all about. That's why it says we should fight back when our honor is challenged. Now, stick with me here because this might sound anthropological or academic here at the beginning, but you're going to find yourself in this picture. In the West, which most of us grew up in the West, we typically care more about the concepts of innocence and guilt, and we care more about individualism. But 80% of the world lives in a culture that is more collective, more group-oriented. 
And it's all based, its primary value system is honor and shame. By the way, this is the culture in which the Bible was written. And so we need to understand this. Let's offer some quick definitions before I lose you of what we're talking about. These come from honorshame.com, which is an excellent resource for anyone who wants to dive into this a little bit more. What is honor? When I say honor, what am I talking about? Honor is the group's recognition of a person's worth. It's all about what the group says. It's like a public credit rating where everyone has a score. Honor is when other people consider you worthy, valuable, and respectable. And we care about this, right? Even in the West, let's be honest. So what is shame then? Shame is the feeling that you get when you violate community ideals and expectations. Not necessarily your own moral, ethical rules for yourself, but when you don't meet, up to, don't meet the community ideals and expectations, you feel shame. Guilt says, I did something wrong, now let me go make restitution and fix it. Shame says, I feel wrong or I am wrong. Now let me go cover and hide before I get exposed. This shame can only be removed by other people. The shamed person must be restored by a higher person or reincorporated into the group. This is how most of the world lives. We live this way too, we just don't notice it as much. Tell me if you can relate to this anecdote. One day, I was getting unnecessarily angry at my kids because of the way they were acting in public. Anybody been there? And my incredibly wise, wonderful Proverbs 31 wife asked me a diagnostic question later that day. She said, why do you think you were getting so angry at the kids today? Do you think it might be because you were embarrassed and you care what people think of you because of the way your kids are acting? Nailed it. She was spot on. I was angry because I was fighting to preserve my own honor, my own reputation. My kids have acted like that a thousand times and I haven't said anything. But that day I cared about my honor. Can you relate to that? How about when someone's words offend us? Now this is a true test of anger, isn't it? When someone's words really get at us, really offend us. Why is it when someone slanders us, especially if it's in front of other people, sometimes face-to-face, -face, but sometimes this happens on the internet these days, why, when we're slandered by someone's words, does our blood start boiling? Why do we feel justified in snapping back with some words of our own right away? It's because we value honor. And our heart is willing to shame someone else even if that's what it takes to recapture my honor and the value and what people think of me. Are you with me? Are we being honest with ourselves? So many things that we do are actually an honor competition. What can I do to gain and preserve my honor? If it takes getting angry, I'll get angry. If it takes something else, I'll do something else. But friends, this is where the gospel comes in and it changes everything. It changes everything. Do you remember the fourth proverb that we read? Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. The world's wisdom says when an offense is committed against us, we should go win our honor back. We fight back. But God's wisdom says it is to our glory, it is to our honor to overlook an offense. What? Why? Because, friends, 
those of us who have placed our faith in, in Jesus Christ and follow Jesus Christ have been given an honor that cannot be taken away. We've been taken from a place of utmost shame, redeemed with the blood of the King of Kings and been joined to his family and seated at his table in the highest honor imaginable. And nothing can change that. Nothing can take that away. And so now we operate with no honor deficit. In fact, we have a surplus of honor. We have more than enough honor to go around. So when we're shamed, when we're offended against, we don't have to go grab it back, win it back, like the world does. We have an honor surplus in Christ Jesus. My friend Werner Mischke in his book, The Global Gospel, puts it this way. Believers have no honor deficit. They are children of God, siblings of the king. Nothing more honorable than that. They are not ashamed. They are full and they are free on mission with God to bless all the peoples of the earth. True believers love and give sacrificially. When insulted, true believers are free, if necessary, to absorb the shame of others. Believers are ministers of reconciliation. Believers can stop being defensive or violent because in Jesus Christ, they are peacemakers. Because of their honor surplus in Jesus, they rejoice in suffering and being counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They joyously live with an ethical righteousness that rises above depraved cultural values that are insulting to God. So when the world says fight, we say forgive. When the world says win your honor back, we say it's already been won and I want to give it to you because I have more than enough. How does this play out in the life of a Christ follower? Here's one example. In 2010, Dan Cathy, president and COO of the best chicken place you could ever imagine, Chick-fil-A, made public comments defending the biblical definition of marriage between a man and woman. You might remember this. In the months that followed, Kathy and Chick-fil-A endured boycotts, demonstrations, a flurry of slander, and a host of all other forms of opposition. Many universities began to bash the franchise and ban it from their campuses. Well, rather than fighting with words or with litigation or some other form to try to win his honor back, Kathy acted out of the freedom and honor that he already enjoys in Christ. Here's what he did. He took time outside of the public eye, didn't want a newspaper article written about this or anything, to befriend a man named Shane Windmeyer. And you'll see their picture here. Windmeyer's on the left, Kathy is on the right. Shane Windmeyer is the founder and executive director of Campus Pride, a leading national organization for LGBT college students. They developed a friendship, and months later, Windmeyer himself was tired of the slander being leveled at Chick-fil-A, and he decided to go public about his friendship with Kathy. He writes this, on August 10th, 2012, in the heat of the controversy, I got a surprise phone call from Dan Kathy. He had gotten my cell phone number from a mutual business contact serving campus groups. I took the call with great caution. He was going to tear me apart, right? give me a piece of his mind, turn his lawyers on me. The first call lasted over an hour and the private conversation led to more calls the next week and the week after. Throughout the conversations, Dan did not change his convictions about marriage, 
But he expressed a sincere interest in my life, wanting to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know about where I grew up, my faith, my family, even my husband. As Dan and I grew through mutual dialogue and respect, he invited me to be his personal guest on New Year's Eve at the Chick-fil-A Bowl, the picture you see here. This was an event that Campus Pride and others were planning to protest. After the game and after a furthering of the relationship, Campus Pride stopped its slanderous campaign against Chick-fil-A. Not everybody's going to stop their slanderous campaign against us. But whether someone stops their campaign or not, we as children of the king are slow to anger. And it is to our honor to overlook an offense and forgive. Because we have more than enough honor in Christ Jesus. And that's the reality in which we operate. In Christ, believers have more than enough honor and do not need to fight for more. We're free to forgive. All this talk about overlooking offenses and being slow to anger might raise a question in your mind. I know it did in mine as I was thinking about these things. Is it ever okay to be angry? Is, is being angry sinful? According to God's wisdom, is anger always an undesirable, th undesirable thing? Let's read a passage together and we'll decide together. You can listen if you'd like to. This is from John chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. According to God's wisdom, is anger sinful? No. Anger at the wrong things, at the wrong times, anger in the wrong forms is sinful. But according to God's wisdom, here personified in Jesus Christ, anger is an attribute of God that when properly applied is an asset for his glory. That's our third and final lesson for today, the communicability of anger. Anger is an attribute of God that when properly applied is an asset for his glory. Now I'm calling this a communicable attribute of God. Quick theological words exploration here. God has attributes or characteristics that we call incommunicable, which means they only reside in him and they can't be displayed by his people. Things like his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his transcendence. But then he has what we call communicable attributes, which means they're meant for his people to display. Things like his love, his holiness even, his anger is communicable. It's an attribute of his that when properly applied is an asset for his glory. So we're saying that it's an asset when it's properly applied. So what is a proper application of anger? 
admittedly, I don't spend a lot of time on social media anymore, but I do have a Facebook page still. And I get on there every couple of weeks, mainly to check on you all, make sure you're behaving yourselves and I don't need to come back or anything. But one of my Facebook friends is a man whose name starts with T and ends with M. You might know him. And a while back, a post popped up in which this person purported to have reasons for righteous anger. And I quote, There are two things that produce a kind of righteous anger in me and make me want to flip over some tables. Number one, not using a blinker while driving. And number two, saving a table at Joe's Kansas City Barbecue. If you haven't been there, you have to wait in line. People get out of line to go save the table. Yeah, it is kind of infuriating. But my first thought is this. I've done both of these things, the no blinker driving and the save the table. So maybe I'm not welcome around here. Maybe there's a reason I got excommunicated to Western Asia. I don't know. That's my first thought. My my second thought is this question. Are these causes for righteous anger? No. Eat your barbecue standing up if you have to and love your neighbors on the road. In the aforementioned person's defense, I left out the very first sentence, which reads, I work hard at being gracious and forgiving like Jesus, but... (laughs) So... What is a cause for righteous anger then? Let's look back at Jesus and see. I want you to think about this answer in your head for just a minute. Why was Jesus so angry at the temple? Why did he get angry at the temple? He was consumed with a zeal for the honor of his father's name. And we can make the case from Scripture that a believer can be justifiably angry when he or she is consumed with a zeal for the glory of God. Now, unfortunately, what I'm mentioning here is kind of a lost doctrine or a lost conversation in Christian circles. And I'm glad that it's not in our church. But people don't talk about this a lot. Another way to say this, another attribute of God that you can point to is to say that God is a jealous God. God is a jealous God. We think of anger and jealousy as bad things sometimes. God is a jealous God, though. He is jealous for his own glory. Take another journey with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is another chapter in the Old Testament that a lot of people know. We know the first few verses, verses like, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today are beyond your heart. You shall teach them to your children. We post this passage in our home a lot of times. But sometimes we don't read the rest of the chapter or we forget what it says because it says things like this. Deuteronomy 6 verse 12. Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Pause with me for a minute and remember that we deserve this. We deserve this fate here in Deuteronomy 6.15. To be destroyed off the face of the earth. 
God, who is jealous for his own glory, is justified in his anger against us. His anger against us placing our affections on things ahead of him. His anger against our lack of reverence for him. His anger against our forgetting him. He is justified in this anger. God is slow to anger, but he does anger. Romans 3 puts it this way. It says that in God's divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, but he didn't forget them, and he will uphold his justice. It says that he poured out all of his jealous anger and all of his unimaginable wrath on his son, on the cross, for the sake of those who would believe in him. So that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Oh, God is angry. He always applies it in the right ways. We're grateful that he applies it in loving ways. So, my brothers and sisters, those who have been saved, those who have been redeemed from God's righteous anger and conferred with an honor and a freedom that will not go away, I want to exhort us to be zealous, be jealous for God's glory. Be slow to anger, but not too slow to be jealous for the glory of God. So what sorts of things do we get angry at then if we're a people who are jealous for God's glory? What angers us? Well, some things are obvious. Our family has been exploring some German history this year. We're trying to teach our boys more about world history, especially the Holocaust and some of those events that we really want them to understand. Sarah and myself have been doing some other reading as well and furthering our education of it. It's been great, fascinating, although it's a very unfortunate part of our world's history. On our way back to the States last week, we had an overnight in Berlin. It was the cheapest ticket I could find. In Berlin, there are memorials to those who were killed during the Holocaust, and it offers an overwhelming look at the mass murder that was authorized by Hitler's Reich. Depending on who you read, close to 6 million Jewish people, somewhere between 10 to 20 million of non-Aryan, million non-Aryan people murdered. Russians, Poles, Slavs, Gypsies, prisoners of war, physically handicapped people, mentally handicapped people, I'm leaving some out even. But this gets your blood boiling, doesn't it? It should. We who are God's people endowed with his spirit, the God who has anger as an attribute that's used for his glory, this sort of thing should anger us. Anger and jealousy for God's glory translates into hatred of the murder of millions of innocent people. I read Eric Metaxas' biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer this last year as well, and it goes under the surface and points out some things I didn't realize before, and that is that the German state church cowered in fear before Hitler and, and his regime. Instead of being angry and jealous for God's glory and standing up and doing what was right, they cowered in fear and said, we'll follow this man. Are you serious? God's people, the church. Some things to get angry at are obvious. Some things are not quite as obvious because I think Satan numbs us to them. In my opinion, 
the Holocaust wasn't the biggest mass murder ever. In America alone, more than 60 million babies have been murdered since 1973. Since 1980, more than 1.5 billion babies worldwide have been aborted. I believe God has a righteous anger against this, and his people should too. Nearly every TV show, movie we watch uses God's name as a curse word. Do you think God has a righteous anger against that? I think he does. Should we? In the 18th century, John Wesley said this, Give me 100 men that hate nothing but sin and love Jesus Christ and we'll shake England for God. I have a question for us this morning. Do we hate sin? Not just the sin of other people that we might have just been talking about a second ago, but a more important question. Do you hate your own sin? Do you see the darkness that still exists in your flesh and long for it to be gone? Does it anger you? Find me a hundred people who actually hate sin and we'll shake this world for Christ. Do you know who Phineas is in the Bible? Phineas is a character that we don't usually know. doesn't always make it on the top ten lists of memorable characters in the Bible, but I think he's pretty memorable. I'm going to read his story from Numbers chapter 25. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. So the people are intermarrying, getting involved with foreign nations who don't serve Yahweh, just like the Lord told them not to do. The foreigners invited the Israelites to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord might turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And at this time, behold, one of the people of Israel came together, excuse me, came and brought a Midianite woman to his family, a foreign woman, to his family in the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation and the people of Israel. They were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw this, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. The plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nonetheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Now, before we go misapply this, I want to give a little bit of context, okay? Because I'm not advocating for somebody to go kill people in their anger after this. This is a very specific command that God gave his people to be separated, be holy. We can draw some parallels to what he's called us to do. But one of the specific things was you don't intermarry with foreign uh, people because they'll ensnare your hearts. You'll go after their gods. And that's exactly what we see happening here. So, and then even when he tells them to stop and sends a plague to the effect that 24,000 of them are dying, they're still doing it. Here you have a man bringing a foreign woman and they're going to be together in front of everybody while this plague is going on. And Phineas says, enough. 
enough of this. Who is going to stand up and be jealous for God's glory? In this particular case, his action was justified. Now, when we are asking, how should we apply this anger that we have? I would encourage all of us to go to the Lord, the way David does in the book of Psalms. He is angry at injustice. Why, God? Why do the wicked get this? Why is this happening? And you see that David is always rooted in the character of God and in the gospel that we talked about earlier. So we go and we ask God to help us direct our anger in holy ways, in loving ways, in gentle ways. Why not look, it won't look the, exactly the same as Phineas, but I pray that we have a zeal and a jealousy like he has. Let me finish the passage. And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, say to Phineas, I give him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Phineas is what we would call a type of Christ, pointing to Jesus, foreshadowing Jesus' coming and ultimate offer of lasting atonement. One thing that Phineas and Jesus have in common is anger that is rooted in jealousy, jealousy for the glory of God. Friends, anger is an attribute of God that when properly applied is an asset for his glory. You might not know me as an angry person, but I want to be known as an angry person. Slow to anger, but angry with a jealousy for the glory of God. God is slow to anger, and so should his children be. God's children have enough honor in Christ Jesus, more than enough honor, and don't need to win it back. Anger is an attribute of God that when properly applied is an asset for his glory. When I was writing, preparing for this time this morning, I was really convicted that I'm not as slow to anger as God's word calls me to be. I don't hate sin as much as I should. I'm not as comfortable in Christ's honor as I should be. I'm not as jealous for his glory as I should be. Maybe some of you can relate as you sit here and are challenged with the truth from God's word this morning. Would you join me as we pray a closing prayer and repent together? Father God, the one who is perfect in all of your ways, no character flaws in you. God, we have seen your character afresh this morning. We have seen some attributes of yours that we don't always consider. God, we, those of us that are in Christ, have been crucified with Jesus, and we no longer live, but you live in us. We ask you to unleash your character in us. As we're going to sing here in a minute, show us who you are. Fill us with your heart and lead us in your love to those around us, God. God, we repent. We confess that we are not like Jesus. Make us more like you. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand.